hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brendan Store. I'm Ian Gibbs. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 75. 75. <laughs> and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing okay on this rainy, dark night on the mountain. Yeah, it is dismal. It is pretty gross. It has out been there. all day. <laughs> yes. However, it can be worse outside, as I've learned. Yes. Uh, now, let's, let's before we get started, though, before I, I describe my, uh, my situation, shall we say, <laughs> uh, let's say we are recording this. This is our first episode of 2020, so Happy New Year to everybody. Woo-hoo! We are recording this, however, in the past. So we're speaking to you from the future? I don't know. Anyways, it's <laughs> very complicated. We're speaking to the future from yes. the past. Yes, there we go. That sounds less exciting, but all yeah, the same. Yeah, I hear you. We're recording this in 2019 because we like to take a nice section of January off. And just a couple of days ago, I learned a horrifying truth. Yes, you did. <laughs> Thanks to the gardeners. Yes. So the apartment I live in, uh, we're on the ground floor in a corner unit. And we're surrounded by vegetation. There's a lot of trees and bushes and things like this. And it was kind of nice because you get a lot of privacy. But it's very dark. And there was always times where I thought, man, I just feel like unsafe. But I didn't think about it. Like I just, something is watching me. Yeah, something's yeah. watching me. I just thought, ah, oh, it's the neighborhood, you know, because the neighborhood's not great. Yeah. Uh, well, no, it turns out there was a homeless guy living just outside my bedroom window. So you probably were actually being watched. Yes. Creepy. Yes, it turns out they cut back all the bushes and I asked why they did it. And they said, oh, well, we found out someone was... Uh, Someone was living in the bushes. Ah, Jesus Christ. He had a small man nest in there. He did. He, in fact, had a small man nest. (laughs) And, you know, I sometimes have fallen asleep with the patio door open, sitting on the couch. Really? Oh, many times. Wow. And so I just wonder. I do wonder. You know, it makes me think of that night when Nick was gone. and You heard heard a cough in the apartment. In the apartment. Mm, I'm guessing it wasn't. In the apartment, I'm guessing it was right beside the window. Yeah, it may very well have been. <laughs> it's so funny that all these paranormal experiences, nope, turns out just a homeless guy living outside your window. <laughs> There's a real cat, <laughs> a real guy living outside my window. <laughs> Jesus. He wasn't a shadow person. It was just dark. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to find out that, uh, you know, the shadow person who I, you know, my initial experience yes. was caused by, is, is this going to have been this old hobo from Revelstoke, yeah. Mil- Milkshake Harry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was his real name. Oh my god. Oh yeah, we every you know, everyone has one. Wow. We, we had milkshake Harry. I feel like we're in an episode of Scooby Doo, you know, at the oh. end where they pull off <laughs> yeah. the mask of the ghosts and oh you meddling kids. It's just old man homeless guy. Just, yeah. That's it. Trying to build a new building and we were getting in his way. Oh man. And the thing is, I, you know, I, I am very, because we live in a very expensive city. Yeah. You know, which is ludicrous given the size of it and the available services, but it's very expensive. So I, I'm sympathetic to that particular, you know, to, to being homeless. Yeah, it's, it's, no. It's actually a lot easier to end up there than very most people think. Very much so. Very much so. But uh, at the same time, you know, man, I sleep there. And yeah. If, I, if, if he, one thing, if he, if he'd come along and said, hey, I'm Norm. And uh, I'm going to be living over here under this tree. I'm like, yeah, I get it, Norm. I mean, a couple more months like this and I'll be living under the tree with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, to just find out that there has been a strange man in the dark outside where you sleep unguarded with your wife, it's 
It ain't great. And and with the window open, so the cats can come and go. Yeah, that too. Yeah. That too. And, I mean, it reminds me, Nick had a nightmare one night about a foot coming through the window. Oh, my God. So I hope it wasn't Norm. I bet it was. Well, I'm hoping it was just a nightmare. Sure. Go with that. Yeah. That, you stay in that safe cocoon of protective thinking. Well, since I'm apparently sleeping next to Grand Central Station, I need it. <laughs> Jesus H. Christ, Norm. Just knock. Just tell me. Other than that, how was your week? <laughs> Other than that, my week has involved editing episode 74. Yes. Yes, which I'm hoping that everyone is out there enjoying. Uh, that is, of course, our audio dramas. The uh, was The Night Wire by H.F. Arnold and Coming Home by yours truly. It was a crazy amount of work, but it was great because we got everyone together. Yeah. Luke, Anthony, Sarah, me, you, all of us joining together, doing voices, having yeah. a great ass time. It was really fun. And then me spending about 20 hours in an office putting it all together. But and that's. I would say 20 hours a day for seven days. <laughs> it wasn't quite, to put it all wasn't together. quite that bad, but. Oh my Lord. But boy, did it come out great. I oh. really, I really hope people enjoy it. And if you did enjoy it, let us know. And if it's not your thing, tell us that as well. Yep. But um, either way, it'd be great to get some feedback on that. Absolutely. And say we're recording this quite early, so it may be that we've already heard. But Probably. Uh, but hey, yeah. you can never get too much feedback. So, so well, praise. You, too much praise. Oh, I see. So you just want syncophants and, 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 and weasels just coming to you and going, you're so awesome. That sounds lovely. <laughs> Where do I sign? Oh, God. Is there a service I subscribe and to? And once again, the point is missed. <laughs> Forget Quip. <laughs> I want kissass.com. <laughs> You're so great, Brennan. Oh, and, and you got to put it's, it's like those old English TVs where you had to put like the elect the coin in the box yes. for the TV to work. So, or yeah. the gas meter in yeah, England. Yeah. yeah. You know, here's another quarter. Tell me I'm great. <laughs> Tell me how nice my hair is. If someone's going to pay me, I mean, I'll do it. Yeah, you can't sell it. You can't even, you won't even try. <laughs> yeah, you're fantastic. Yeah. You don't I, even smell that bad, no you, matter what people say. Are you saying I'm insincere or only, I'm too sincere? Only when you're talking to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair. <laughs> As for this week's show, over the last couple months, we've been putting out a call to our listeners, asking them what their favorite stories were mm -hmm. from either, you know, the last year or since we started. And it's something I think we'd like to maybe start doing regularly in early January, is sort of a greatest hit show where we revisit popular stories from the past years and either sort of look at them with fresh eyes or just revisit them because they yeah, were yeah. great fun or they scared the ever-loving shit out of us. Yeah. And so that's what this week is all about. We are exploring the Ghost Story Guy's greatest hits or misses in some cases. <laughs> we have a lot of those. But yes. So in this episode, we have selections from The Haunting of France, Taxi to the Other Side, Call of the Wendigo. That one goes way back to yeah, episode four. Yeah. And a whole bunch more. And I am excited to revisit some of these, going through the old scripts, finding these stories, man. I was reminded of how creepy some of these stories were, especially actually Ghost in the Machine. Yeah. There were several candidates from that episode yes. alone, and I really struggled to pare that down. I well, think that's my favorite so far. Well, and a lot of people reference that one as well. Anything with Ghost in the Machine or the Woods were pretty pretty yeah. strong contenders for bringing them back. So. Yes. And, and also, someone wanted us to revisit some missing 411 stuff. Yeah. And so, though we don't have a particular story, I do have something that I shared on episode 10 that people have probably forgotten about by now. So, we'll revisit that. Cool. And uh, it's all coming up after the break. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back. As we said before the break, this episode is going to be the Ghost Story Guy's Greatest Hits. And we're going to start with a uh, missing 411 story. And, mm-hmm. and if you listen to the early episodes... You were um, pretty obsessed with this for a while. I was, yeah. yeah. I, I still am, but honestly, the, the first documentary really put me off. Really? I really didn't like it. Oh, um, what didn't you like about it? Well, I felt that he made a mistake by focusing solely on children. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I felt like, while some of the stories were really strong, I feel like the case he built... The, the the film around, I feel like that had a much more, uh, shall we say, close to the ground explanation. Right. You know, I, I, I'm not going to say anything specific. Right. Just because, you know, I don't want to get sued. Right. But I feel like it it, it wasn't mysterious yes. so much as it was uh, just well hidden. Yeah. But the second documentary about hunters, I thought was really good. And if you haven't seen that, I recommend renting it. For those of you who don't know, Missing Forum 1, I mean, look it up, but... The gist of it is that a former police detective named David Polites has uncovered what he believes to be hundreds of anomalous missing persons. And when I say anomalous, what I mean are they've disappeared in national parks and they're not ordinary circumstances. You know, the people will turn up, the bodies will turn up in areas which have already been searched or things like this. Again, look look it up. I won't get into the the whole explanation here. It's a fascinating subject and I'm just, I was really, really hooked into it in the Mm -hmm. early episodes. But there's a subset of this that really caught my eye. And I have a real uh, intense series of synchronicities associated with it. And, and to get the full story, you're going to have to listen to Centralia and the Tyranny of Memory. It's one of our bonus shows. But the gist of it is that young men are drowning after nights out at bars or with friends. And they're not being found for quite a long time. And what's interesting is that their rate of decomposition is not consistent with the length of time that they have been in the water. So the implication being that they are being taken and then held, possibly tortured, and then drowned. Now, uh, Polites did not originate this theory. It's a, a different set of investigators, but he did incorporate a lot of these deaths into his Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence book. And it just so happened that when I was in Revelstoke in, uh, I want to say 2017, may have been 2018, uh, I was chatting to a friend of mine and I had no idea, but it turns out that he recalled himself being at a party in Revelstoke, probably in the mid-2000s. And these drownings began in the late 90s. And uh, he was at a party in the mid-2000s. All he remembers is being there drinking. And and there was a bunch of people there. You know, it was a house party. And the next thing he remembers, he's walking towards a bridge. And he kind of fades in and out on this. And then he remembers climbing up on the bridge. And the next thing he remembers is being in the river. Hmm. And that river has crazy undercurrents. Yeah. The Columbia, right? Uh, yeah. The yeah. Columbia River. And he was just lucky that he ended up being pushed to the edge of the water and he was able to climb out. But again, he was just blackout. But again, usually if you're blackout drunk, you're not covering that much ground. No. Because it's quite a distance. It's several miles from where he started the night to where he finished in the river. And so I thought it was fascinating that that somehow has made it to Revelstoke. But then it happened here. Yeah, only a couple of years ago, I think, a guy... Last had, year. Yeah, last year. A guy had been with his friends at the bowling alley drinking, but they weren't drinking that much. He did not leave drunk. Yeah. And then he went to walk home, and he took a route he probably shouldn't have been on, or, or, or for his route home, it wasn't the right route. Um, but they predict that the route home took him very close to the lake. No, that's the thing, it didn't. He, he was last seen on camera over by the bowling alley. Like right, the, uh, b- but the lake is the other way. He was oh. he was going the opposite direction from the lake. Oh, okay. I thought it was that other lake. 
Uh, no, it was it was uh, Glen Lake. Oh, I thought it was Langford Lake. Whatever it was, he was going the opposite direction. Oh, okay, okay. From the lake where he ended up. Right. And again, this may be nothing, but these drownings allegedly smiley faces tend to turn up in the vicinity of them. Right. It's believed that this is some kind of yeah iconography associated mm-hmm. with the group mm-hmm. doing this. Well, I've noticed an uptick in smiley faces painted in the asphalt hmm. around the city. And, and it could just be a coincidence, but we've had that, let's say that young man drowned. Yeah. And I actually heard a story about a homeless man who was drowned in the creek that goes by the Oak Bay Rec Center. Right. And supposedly the place where he used to hang out after he was found drowned, there was a smiley face spray painted in blue spray paint. Ooh, creepy. Yeah. And so again, I can't prove any of this. And could be wholly unrelated, but I'm absolutely fascinated by missing 411, by this, specifically this subset of drowning disappearances. Yeah. Because there's just something about it. There is something about it that I am just drawn to and I don't know why. Hmm. But anyways, so that that's sort of, someone wanted us to revisit missing 411. That's sort of the nutshell version. Yeah. But if you really want to get the full story, listen to my, uh, again, listen to my story on Centralia and the tyranny of memory. I want to say it's bonus episode three. And uh, we, I had some really fascinating coincidences, including while reading that book, I visualized a place which I'd never been to before, and then I completely by accident found hmm. a real place in Pennsylvania uh, that, because of my hypnotic regression, I located. And so, again, who knows what it means, but it happened. And so you kind of you kind of want to know what it means, if nothing else. All right, so now let's get straight to stories. It's not Grandma, from episode 40, The Ghost in the Machine. As most of you know, when a relative dies and they have no will, their possessions are divided equally amongst the family. My grandmother died of cancer when I was two years old. I don't remember much of the time we spent together, but from what I've heard, she had a short and troubled life. My grandmother was succeeded by nine children, including my mother. Her assets were sorted through and given away. My mother had cared for my grandmother during her illness, and I think the strain of also having to take on her possessions kept her from accepting most of them at the time. When I was six, my aunt asked my mom if she was ready to take some of the things my grandmother had left behind, and my mother finally accepted. My sister and I were ecstatic. What little kid doesn't love having stuff to rummage through? And when the things arrived, my mother let us pick one thing each to keep. One in particular caught my eye. An old light blue telephone that my aunt had told me I used to play with at grandmother's house. I had to have it. Once my mother said it was okay, I took the phone to my room and played with it all day long. The rest of the day and night passed as it usually did, dinner, bath time, and bed all in short order. I still shared a room with one of my sisters then, Kara, and at bedtime we jumped at our bunk beds and began to relax. The phone was sat on my play stand where it had spent the whole day, along with some other toys. I'd finally fallen asleep when a loud, bleeding noise pierced my ears, and I woke with a start. Carol woke up too when she didn't seem all that worried, when, still partially asleep, she began to look for the source of the noise. And she didn't seem all that worried when, still partially asleep, she began to look for the source of the noise. It turns out my new playphone was ringing. Remember, this phone had no cord, and even if it had, we didn't have a phone jack in our room. I guess it didn't register to Kara that the phone was fake because she picked up the receiver and said hello. A moment later, she dropped the phone, screamed for my mother, and ran to hold me in the bunk. The voice on the phone kept speaking, and now I could hear it. 
It was my grandmother's voice, but it wasn't her demeanor. The voice was ill-tempered and seemed violent. All it kept repeating was, Hello, girls, and I'm here, girls, with a horrible laugh in between. It kept up the laughing even after my mother bolted through the door. She took one look at the situation and immediately hung up the phone. She tried her best to calm us, but by this time everyone in the house was awake and in our room asking what happened. All we could say was, Grandma's here, to which my mother replied, That was not your grandmother. Needless to say, the next day my toy was destroyed. I'm not sure to this day if it was her or not, but I do believe that my grandma is suffering somewhere due to the horrible events in her life and leading up to her death. Yikes. Yikes indeed. And I got to say, and I'm not going to get into a religion thing here because I know this is not a popular thing for me, but if she had an awful shitty life yeah. and now she's being punished forever for it, right. come on, man. I know. This is a bad deal. Yeah. I want to I speak to management. <laughs> Can you imagine you die and you rise up out of your body and you think, oh man. Finally, yeah. I'm free. It's my second chance at life. Yay. And then you look behind you and death's got a whip and he's just cracking <laughs> at you. Move, you animal. Oh, Jesus. You're okay. working in the afterlife DMV. That's right. Breaking rocks like Rambo. Yeah. I always think of Beetlejuice. You know, when they the two ghosts in Beetlejuice, they go to the, the basically the ghost help agency. Oh, right. And it's basically just a great big civil servant office. <laughs> so great. It's funny, actually. I recall hearing on Mysterious Universe years ago, because I, I haven't listened to that show in a long time, but there there have been people who have had near-death experiences, which have included ludicrous bureaucracy. Wow. So you may be onto something. Interesting. I really hope I'm wrong. If there is, I hope I die again. Because <laughs> maybe second death. You know? Maybe. That's when you finally get retirement? Yep. Yeah, I just, like it. Death just like, look, man, you've been in the coffin for 18 years. Just come out. <laughs> no, nope, I'm staying here. I'm staying here. Staying here. You I'm, can't make me. Nope, that's it. <laughs> you suck. This is The Wendigo by Theodore Roosevelt. Yes, that Theodore Roosevelt. We told it on episode four called The Wendigo. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical, and they have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but a few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and these few were of perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But once I listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. It was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bowman, who was born and had passed all his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghosts and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps, of the snow walkers and the specters, and the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer, who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. When the event occurred, Bowman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of salmon from the head of Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before a solitary hunter who'd wandered into it was slain seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who'd passed his camp only the night before. 
The memory of this event, however, weighed very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow. The rocky timber-clad ground being from thence onwards impractical forces. They then struck out on foot through the vast gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs riding around it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes, covered with the unbroken growth of the evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their short absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs, and in sheer wantonness destroyed their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores, and lighting the fire. While Bowman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bowman, that bear had been walking on two legs. Bowman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by about two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bowman was awakened by some noise, and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but he must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they'd set the previous evening and to put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had been again torn down, the visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding, and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp, it had gone along the soft earth by the brook, where the footprints were as plain as if in snow. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. About midnight the thing came down through the forest opposite across the brook, and it stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. 
They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn-out moan, a peculiar, sinister sound, yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were more ready to do this, because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they'd caught very little fur. However, it was first necessary to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning, they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they'd passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fear seemed absurd to the two-armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger, from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bowman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the pack. On reaching the pond, Bowman found three beaver in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. It took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried towards the camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmer indistinctly. There was nothing to break the ghostly stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and shouted as he approached it, but he got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first, Bowman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward again, he shouted, and as he did so, his eyes fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking nearby in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps, and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around in it in an uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bowman, utterly unnerved, and believing that the creature with which he had to deal with was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle, and struck off at a speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until far beyond the reach 
of pursuit. All right, so I'm just going to say this. Romped and gambled, that creature had sex with that man's dead body. That's what I was thinking. Yep, 100%. That is ex- <laughs> good to know we're on the same page. That man he was... He bent him over that log and he had his way with him. Yes, sir. <laughs> I don't think you're here for the hunting. <laughs> that, and, and now that story, too, I mean, that story is uh, allegedly true. Roosevelt claims that is a thing that he was told really happened. Yeah, well, and he, coming from Roosevelt... He wasn't one to make up stories. He, he seemed like a no bullshit kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, he, he was. I've seen a couple of documentaries on the whole family, actually. And uh, they were not, you know, a fanciful people. No. I, I will say I, I read uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's biography of him, The Bully Pulpit. Right. And he seemed like a giant pain in the ass. Oh, yeah, he was. And so for anyone to bother to tell him a story, um, you know, it would have to be real because he would just call them. A bullshitter. Yeah. I, I got to say, though, man, those were hardier people than I because at about 16 different points in the first page, <laughs> I thought, it, just go home. Wait, the ponies can't go any further? Well, then neither can I. Right? <laughs> oh, the animals refuse to go further. <laughs> Imagine there was a point in our development where we thought, boy, animals are stupid. They don't know shit. Yeah. They're like, like dumb like, horses. Like when a tsunami's coming? Huh, that's weird. Look at all the animals going up the hill. Stupid animals. Stupid animals. Yeah. Wasting <laughs> all that energy. Oh, hey, look, the sea is receding. Cool. That More looks beach. cool. Let's build there. The number of people I've heard say, oh, I'd love to see that. You dumb bastards. Yeah, no. Good. It, it, the second I see the ocean starting to back up for me, yeah. I'm gone. Oh, 100%. And, and admittedly, I'm, I'm not a fast-moving creature. No, but, but I can get to a car pretty damn quick because yep. I wouldn't have parked that far. Away, I can nope. tell you that because I'm not walking. There you go. Well, I mean, I avoid this problem, but just by never going to the beach. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no that that story still scares the hell out of me. And I yeah. remember on episode four because that was the first episode where we had the proper mics. Yeah, because the first three we did with that tabletop. Mic. That's right. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember that was one of the things that Luke sent us a bunch of info on because he would love Wendigo. Yeah, and uh, I know we've talked about doing another Wendigo episode since, but I think there's very few verifiable first-person stories. Yeah. You know, because it's, yeah. it's almost more of a concept than it is a creature. It is. And it seems, I think the Wendigo got put onto anything that was wild or insane. Right. Or unexplainable. So you could be talking about a Sasquatch or a crazy person or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, um, yeah, I mean, the, the story. The legend of... of the Wendigo being a flesh consumer. Right, a, a cannibal uh, becoming a cannibal spirit and entering into man and 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 causing him to eat his own. Like, yeah, the Wendigo's way bigger than just oh, here here's a picture of a Wendigo. Oh, that's it. it I doesn't mean, doesn't work. There was uh, was it Swift Runner? Uh, he was uh, a First Nations man here in Canada, right? Who I think killed and ate some of his family. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, they believe he may have been somehow you know possessed of Wendigo. Right. Um, funny enough, I was just listening to the podcast Switchblade Sisters, which if you want um, you know, a slightly more calm perspective on movies than you get in some of these shows where guys are shouting at each other all the time, <laughs> uh, Switchblade Sisters is, is really good. And they just covered, or not just, but the episode I just listened to, they covered the film Ravenous, okay. which is a Wendigo film. Oh, cool. And it's sort of a Western, I want to say it's set in the late 19th century dealing yeah. with soldiers at an abandoned or at a remote outpost. Right. Cannibalism is involved and the spirit of the Wendigo is involved. Perfect. It is a bizarre movie, but really it's worth seeing. It's a bizarre story. Let's not fool ourselves. Yeah, that's very true. It's an odd concept rooted in much older times than we've been around. And if we're saying something is bizarre, folks, (laughs) it's pretty messed up. (laughs) A rainy night in Singapore. 
first heard on episode 47, Taxi to the Other Side. Between cops, crooks, and crazies, I thought 20 years of driving cab in Singapore had shown me just about everything there was to see in this world. I was wrong. My lesson came one rainy night after dropping off an elderly lady in opera estate. The rain had been hammering down all night, bouncing off the street and into my headlights. Between that and the coffee, I was desperate to piss, so once she'd gotten into her lobby, I started threading through back streets on my way to an all-night gas station on Upper East Coast Road. Just pee in the back in a back alley. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Just find a back alley and take a leak. Although it's Singapore, oh, so yeah, from... you can be beaten for chewing right. gum. So I get his distress. Yeah, fair enough, guys. Yeah. I was just thinking, when I used to drink in Revelstoke, I, I had a favorite alley that I peed in. Of course you did, you because know. you're an animal. Well, you're walking home from the bar. And, anyways, it's a long story. Moving on. Most nights, Chu Road is a nice drive. Quiet, suburban, safe. But that night, whether it was the rain, the dark, or something else entirely, something didn't feel right. Maybe there's a homeless guy sleeping outside of his cab. <laughs> Inside my cab, the sound of rain beating on the roof was so loud it occupied everything. The whole world distilled down to a dull roar as the reflections of my headlights bounced on flooded streets. Up ahead, from underneath a huge tree, I saw a man waving at me. The last thing I wanted was a fare, but money is money. And from the way this guy was flailing his arms, he was desperate. Desperate people tip. I started to slow down. The man's face was obscured by the tree he was standing under, but as I got closer, something about his clothes and the way he carried himself seemed familiar. The closer I got to the man, the more uneasy I felt, but I tried to brush it off. After all, if picking up strangers in a city in the rain doesn't make you at least a little nervous, you've been driving too long. <laughs> the man didn't step out from under the tree until I was right up next to him, and that's when it all snapped into focus. The man looked familiar because he was wearing the same shirt as me, and the same trousers, both of them in the same color I had on at that moment. And his face? That was mine too. Somehow, through the feudal rhythm of my windshield wiper, I was looking at my doppelganger. This other version of me started to walk towards the cab, and as he did, his head, my head, blew off his shoulders and rolled away down the gutter. Oh, Jesus. Like, it gets worse. My heart froze. My face, my head had just come off, and this other version of me stood there, headless and not reacting at all. Then he kept walking toward my car, one hand reaching for the door. Finally shaking off the panic that had immobilized me, I screamed and stomped on the gas before he could get closer. I fishtailed wildly, but made some headway, and when I turned to look in my rear view, he was gone. The flooded street was empty. It wasn't until turning onto Upper East Coast Road that I realized I'd pissed myself, but by that point it was the last thing on my mind. When I finally got to the gas station, a few other cabbies were there, including my friend Alex. Alex was in a full-on panic, and he ran towards me, screaming my name. The other guys weren't far behind. I was barely out of my car when Alex shouted something at me. My heart was still pounding in my ears, and all around me the rain was roaring, so at first I couldn't hear him. Then he said it again. You're alive! He went on. Half an hour ago on the taxi radio, I heard your voice shouting for help. You said you were being attacked by a passenger. Then a few minutes later they found your cab and you were inside it. Your head had been slashed off. I must have fainted. When I woke up there were about a dozen drivers and the police all staring at me, wanting to know what happened. To this very day, I just can't explain it. Yes, there'd been a mistake. It was another driver who had died, but what about that vision I'd seen of myself without a head? How do you explain that? Was I supposed to die that night? Wow, eh? Tell you what, man, change of career would be in my future. <laughs> um, I, You know what I thought of, though? Was that? The one saving grace was that it was raining, so when he fainted in the rain, nobody would be like, hey, uh, how come his pants are wet? 
That's a valid point. It would just be like, oh no, he's getting all rainy. This Look. rainy night sure smells like urine. <laughs> <laughs> and fear. <laughs> That's a great story, though. Oh, man. I, Terrifying. I know in, in, well, in the new year, in this year, I'd like to try and do a whole episode on Singapore. Oh, fascinating. I'm just, I, I am fascinated by Singapore. I know virtually nothing about it, but just that what I do know, I find endlessly interesting. The idea for this episode came to me. I was at a King Dude concert. And uh, King Dude is an artist we've played on episode 32, Death on the Road, a very, very popular artist out of Seattle. And he played this tiny show in Vancouver. It's at, uh, they refer to it as a semi-legal DIY venue. <laughs> and I won't, I won't say where it is because I don't think they want a lot of publicity, but it's tiny. It's a tiny, tiny place in uh, East Vancouver. And I was outside during, between sets, uh, you know, just killing time because I didn't know anyone there. And there were literally 20 people at the show. And I was the venue is not far from the port and there were taxis going back and forth and it's a really sketchy industrial area. Right. Uh, cause you know what East Van is like. Yeah. And I kept seeing these taxis go past and I thought, geez, I wonder if there are ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, you're always moving, you're going through places yeah. like East Van, which yeah. are crazy empty. Yeah. And I just wondered if these guys see things and sure enough. They do. They do. And yeah. there was a huge, actually, I think that was the first episode where we went, uh, metaphorically speaking to India. With, right, with yeah. stories from there. And we've sort of been kind of a steady theme, sometimes unintentionally. And we've sort of cultivated kind of a, a surprising number of listeners in India. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. The Hotel. From episode 53, The Haunting of France. Many times over the years, I've thought about an experience that happened to me and my first wife on our honeymoon in France. It occurred in 1992, and yet the experience still haunts me. As weddings go, we had a very sweet affair that took place in a beautiful country restaurant outside of Paris. At a certain point in the night, we departed from our guests, as is the custom, though in our case it was also a necessity, as it was a two and a half hour drive to Dieppe, where we were staying. As it was late and we wanted to be careful as we drove, we did not take the auto route, main highway, but we drove to our destination along what is called in France the Old National Highway. It was a longer way of going, But the evening was beautifully warm, and so we took our time and drove the car with the windows open, excited about reaching our hotel, the Windsor, where we had booked the honeymoon suite. When we finally reached our destination, we drove into the town, and were very interested to see how medieval the town's appearance was. It reminded me very much of the Canadian city of Old Quebec City, as it had a very old gated entrance which we passed through, and there were cobblestone streets and many turrets rising from various fortress-like structures. It was, though, completely void of lights and completely silent. Our first impression was it was sort of eerily quiet and dark, and so I was thankful that the moon was shining brightly, as it was sort of our guide to navigate the twists and turns of this medieval city. As an aside, I don't remember saying much of anything to my bride, or her saying much of anything to me as we drove down these strange streets, but there was something unsettling in the air, but nothing we spoke about openly. I remember feeling how odd it was that we didn't hear anything or see anything, no cars, dogs, cats, or other people, but chalked this up to the time of evening, as it was probably getting close to 3 a.m. When we got to the hotel, we couldn't see where to park the car, so we drove it some distance to a place on the coast where we felt safe leaving it, until we figured out where the hotel wanted us to park. As we walked back to the hotel, holding hands along the deadly, quiet, moonlit street, the only thing on my mind was a good night's sleep. So he says. That's why you fuck before the wedding. 
<laughs> You're going to be too tired beforehand or afterwards, so get your bang on before the ceremony. Thank you for that lovely life advice, Emily Post. As we arrived and stepped into the hotel, what we found was a very old-fashioned dark lobby with potted palms and an old tufted red velvet button furniture and a very plump man with a funny mustache, the kind people wax at the ends. He was, as I recall, wearing a vest and a collarless shirt. This man who was sitting at the front desk didn't really have much of an expression, but I figured it was late and he was probably very tired. Oddly, there were no lights on, except the light of a candle burning in a glass-type lantern on his desk. But we paid little attention. We'd finally arrived, and we were looking forward to getting into our room. In my broken French, I asked about our reservation, and the gentleman promptly turned an old ledger that was in front of him and handed me a pen to sign. The only odd thing we felt at that moment was the kind of pen which was given to us. It was the kind one would use to dip into a pot of ink. But thinking all of this was very quaint and a traditional French way of doing things, we did just what he showed us to do, and together we excitedly signed our names as a newly married couple. After we signed, the man said nothing to us, but simply lifted a bell off his desk and rang it. And soon there appeared a very young girl, dressed in what was best described as traditional clothes. I remember her hair was put up in a very odd sort of way, and she wore a white cap on her head that was sort of resting on it. She had a very long dress that went to the floor, and it all sort of looked of a period. What period exactly, I was unsure, but I felt that it was probably in keeping with some sort of tradition of the region, and we found it all very charming. I do remember, though, that the girl's appearance was not lost on my new bride, as she began speaking to me about it in English, and I hushed her, oh goodness, as the girl worked in a tourist-heavy area and probably spoke English. I didn't want to offend her, you see. Oh, but you're okay to shush your new wife. Well, yeah, I, she, she's, she's stuck with you now. Yeah, first wife. <laughs> yep. But I have to it's honestly say, <laughs> I have to honestly say it was very odd and hard not to discuss her appearance and had us really wondering to ourselves as we were led up a winding stairs by candlelight to our room. The whole thing seemed so unlikely and unsettling. I felt as though I needed to say something. And I remember telling my new bride that perhaps this is what this hotel is known for and pointed out the very positive rating which the hotel had received in the guidebook. She looked at me doubtfully. When we arrived at the room, the girl took the key from my hand and proceeded to put it in the door's lock. She turned what sounded like a very heavy tumbler and then clicked the latch, but had trouble opening the door. No words were spoken when she handed me the candle so she could push the door open using both hands. As she pushed, I remember to my astonishment that the door squeaked and squealed across the floor as it was literally scraping across it. Peering into the room, I was astonished and amazed to find it held only two single canopy beds and an enormous amount of dust. It had built up behind the open door like snow behind a plow. The room was also cold and damp. The coverlets of the bed were like green velvet and also buried under a layer of dust. Most horrifying of all, there was a cobweb that strung itself from the canopy top of one bed to the other. Well, that's horrifying? A cobweb? Really? Come to my house. I I stayed in a place worse than this in John Day, Oregon. This is nothing. Uh, I've stayed in a place worse than this, too, as we have talked about. Oh, the the railway (laughs) place. The bugs. Oh, right. (laughs) Yep. Sickened. Oh, come on. Sickened, I said to the girl. This is our honeymoon. We simply can't sleep here. After our show of angst, without saying a word, 
She nodded and pulled back the door and locked it. And so we descended back, how we came down the spiral stairs. But when we arrived at the reception, there was no old man at the desk anymore. So we just left the key and walked out of the hotel, exhausted and at our wit's end. I felt like a prize ass. I'd made all our travel arrangements, but there was little to do except go to our car and try to think of what to do next. This was more or less the pre-digital age, so finding a hotel wasn't as simple as pulling out our iPad. In the end, we walked back to our car, put the seats back, and tried to sleep as best as we could in that tiny French car. It was an uncomfortable, restless night, but we managed to get a small amount of rest. When morning came and we awoke, the day was bright and beautiful, and to our luck, in front of us, not too far, was a beautiful hotel. We walked inside and asked if by chance they had a lovely suite or even a room which we could have immediately. I started to explain to the man at the desk that we were on our honeymoon and had just had an awful experience at the Hotel Windsor the night before. We really were desperate and still dressed as we were in our wedding attire. I'm sure we looked it. The man at the desk looked at me, perplexed. Where? he said. Where did you say you had this bad experience? Frustrated, I repeated myself. The Hotel Windsor. And you just know he did it in that really uh, annoying tourist way. Always the speak louder to foreigners. Yes. Windsor. Yeah. The baffled desk clerk. This is why the French hate us. <laughs> well, one of many. Yeah. The baffled desk clerk then proceeded to tell us that we were now in the Hotel Windsor. And to prove it, he asked for our last name and used it to find our reservation. The room, he said, was still available if we were able to pay the late check-in fee. At this point, we were in free fall. Nothing made sense or felt real. We tried to tell the desk clerk about the hotel we'd been in, how it had been lit by candlelight and staffed by people in traditional dress. The clerk insisted no such hotel existed and that we'd simply been mistaken. But mistaken how? How uh, do you... Right? Oh, you just hallucinated an old-timey hotel. Both of you, for yeah. a good 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like you do. We were too tired to fight, and once we'd gotten to our room, we found our deep sleep until dinner time. While getting dressed, my wife and I talked about the period-themed hotel from the night before and decided that while on our way to eat, we would make a point of going back there. So we tried, walking a considerable distance in all possible directions, but the place was simply nowhere to be found. Not only that, but the things we'd so clearly noticed about the time when we entered it the night before, twisting cobblestone streets, towers, a lack of streetlights were absent. When we finally settled on a restaurant, we peppered our waiter with questions. Was there a period theme hotel in the city? Or maybe there was a movie being shot there. Had the city been in blackout the night before? By this point, you will not be surprised to hear that the answer to every single question was no. Today, I'm honestly still bothered and shaken by this encounter. And I often wondered what would have happened if we would have stayed the night. I do always wonder that. Stayed married, maybe? No. Well, Yeah. There was no hell greater than that marriage. Uh, uh, no, I, I, you know, I've told the story on the show before about that night, the GPS went crazy down in the desert and yeah. kept trying to take us off on some, uh, road down in, uh, sort of Northwestern Nevada or sorry, Northwestern Arizona or Northeastern Arizona, Jesus. But I, I, and I wonder the same thing. What would have happened if we'd taken that road? Yeah. You know, do you just not go wake with up? it? Yeah. <laughs> do you not wake up? Do you... Is this how people go missing? Is this how people end yeah, up lost? You this know? is how people go missing. They found their empty car parked down by the beach yeah. and they were never seen again. Meanwhile, these poor people are having to learn how to tan leather with urine and other fun old timey things. <laughs> that sounds okay, actually. I, uh, That's just because you like to pee everywhere. That is true. I do find it liberating. <laughs>
Next Door, from episode 66, Demons of the Prairie. We'd live in a rural town in Nebraska. I'd rather not say specifically where, but like a lot of places, the economic downturn has hit us hard, and we're seeing more mortgage defaults than ever before. Good, honest people are losing their homes. I hate to see it. That figures into my story, but not quite yet. For quite a long time, Mrs. Dobbenmeyer was our next-door neighbor. She was a lovely woman who we got to know quite well. She also had a big, beautiful dog named Ted that looked just like a lion, but was the sweetest animal you'd ever meet. About eight years ago, Mrs. Dobbenmeyer became too frail to live on her own, even with us helping her, and so her family placed her in an assisted living facility. Poor Ted was separated from her and went to live with Mrs. D's son, and the poor little guy died about a month after. He just couldn't live without her. We visited Mrs. D a few times in her new home and had her over to our place for dinner on a number of occasions, but the move really took it out of her and she declined rapidly. Eventually, she was transferred to a more specialized care facility and no longer recognized visitors. The only thing she ever wanted to talk about was Ted. Just breaks my goddamn heart to think of her alone in that place, lost in her own mind with only Ted's memory to cling to. Doesn't seem fair. Mrs. D's house was empty for a few years after she moved, but finally we got word that a family was about to move in. The Sunday before they were due to arrive, we also got word that Mrs. D was gone. The funeral home allowed us to come say our goodbyes the following Monday, as the new neighbors moved in the last of their boxes. About a week later, we baked a batch of brownies and took them next door so we could introduce ourselves. After all, it wasn't their fault Mrs. D was gone, or even that her house had to be sold. The family, Brian and Kitty and their three kids, were kind and we all got along well. A few days later, the husband, Brian, paid us a visit, asking if anyone had ever died in his new house. We had no idea, and when we asked why, he said his family had encountered strange noises and items being moved, along with something much more concerning. The barking. Apparently every morning around 6am, Brian would hear a dog barking near the rear of the house. At first he couldn't tell whether it was inside or out, so he set an alarm and got ready for it. Kitty waited inside for the noise, and he went out. When the time came, Kitty heard the barking, but he didn't, so it was coming from inside, but they didn't have a dog. We told him about Mrs. D and Teddy, and that seemed to ease his worries as he was pretty open to the idea of spirits coming home to watch over the house and the people in it. He didn't have long to enjoy that thought, though, because the bank foreclosed on them and they had to go. This wasn't that long ago either, maybe a month? We had no idea they were struggling until the moving truck arrived, and then Brian told us that work had slowed and the bank now owned the house. Then they were gone. More walking wounded in this war on people. A couple days after they had moved, I stepped out of the house at my usual time, around 7am, to get into my truck and head to work, but something felt wrong. I felt as though I was being watched. Between my house and Mrs. D's place, there's only a single car driveway and about 12 feet of yard. You can see just about everything. So when I looked around and found nothing, I figured it was all in my head. Then I heard a dog's high-pitched whimper, the type it lets out when it wants some love, but very low almost as if at a distance. I glanced around a little longer, then heard the front door of Mrs. D's house slam hard. I looked over and it looked the same as it had ten seconds earlier, vacant and dark. You never think strange things are actually happening to you. After all, it's a work day, the planet is on fire, who has time for ghosts? So I figured I was imagining things, opened my truck door and tossed my briefcase into the back seat. As I did, I heard the dog again, so I looked up, and there was a woman with medium-length dark hair, about five feet two inches tall, holding the leash of a large animal that looked like a wolf. They were standing on the enclosed front porch of the vacant house staring in my direction. I blinked twice, and they were gone. That got to me, so I climbed into my truck, 
locked the doors, and started saying some prayers. Then I looked up to the second-story window of that vacant home, and there was another man and woman in the window. She was about 60 years old, with graying hair, standing about six feet tall. The man standing next to her appeared to be in his late 20s or early 30s, with shoulder-length blonde hair and broad shoulders. He appeared to be even taller than her. I stared for what felt like an eternity, and they intently stared back. Then they were gone. No waving, no fading. Just there one moment, gone the next. I have never seen these individuals or that dog before, but the stare I received from them was not friendly. Almost to the point of being menacing, and it left every fiber of my nerves on edge. This happened about three weeks ago, and though nothing else has happened, I feel them watching. I can't believe I'm saying this, but the vibe they put out, their energy, it's not good. And it feels like more is being hidden than is being revealed. That one always haunted me. Yeah, because it kind of is just so open. Yeah. And it's almost like with Mrs. D going there, if that was her and the dog, it's like it opened it up. Yeah. You know, the image I always get from this is this idea of... And I think I talked about this on Demons of the Prairie, which I, you know, wasn't that long ago, but this idea of of we have done a bad job of managing things. Right. And so something else is coming. Right. And something else is going to do it for us. Right. And kind of take over. Or maybe people who had been on that land before I mean, coming that, back. That's possible too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a sense of things filling up empty spaces that, yeah. that it kind of gives me. And it's, I don't know, it, it, that one really unsettles me. And it probably has, has stuck with me more than almost any other story we've done. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know why. This last story is called The Shadow Man. From episode 46, Who You Gonna Call? The American South can be both desolate and beautiful in equal measure. Its moss-wreathed cypress trees and fields of switchgrass are as much a part of that land and its history as the cracked earth which anchors its oil derricks. It is an old, powerful place, webbed with swamps and run through with the invisible magic currents which obsess all of us in one way or another. One such current brought Trooper Tom Aronson to a remote rural farmhouse one sweaty summer night. The retiree who owned the land had called into the station to report what he described as a large black man trespassing out back on his land near the shed. The man told Aronson that at first he just ignored the trespasser as he was probably just passing through. And even if he was a thief, there wasn't much back there to take. The problem came, he said, when the large man stayed on his property, seeming to watch the big house from the shadows. Aronson thought the old man was in all likelihood making something out of nothing, but he had to check it out anyway. He pulled out his flashlight and made his way towards the back of the yard. The yard was dry and overgrown, so Aronson had to push through scaly brush that scraped and drew blood and splintered his light into phantasmagorical fragments. As he approached the back of the house, Aronson began to choke on a noxious odor he described as almost chemical in nature, like burning metal. Because of the home's proximity to an oil field, this wasn't a surprise, but still, he wondered how the old man put up with it. Once he'd made it all the way around back, Aronson swept his flashlight beam across the yard and saw the old man hadn't been imagining things. There, next to the shed, was a huge black shadow in the shape of a man. The figure had wide shoulders, its lower half obscured by scrub brush, and seemed to be completely without features. Approaching closer, Aronson finally picked out a detail on the figure's skin, raised bumps, which seemed to cover its entire body. The total lack of movement by the figure had him wondering if he was dealing with a sight case, 
a disturbed man who had wandered away from home, or perhaps an institution. Aronson put a hand on his firearm and slowly began to approach the shadow, identifying himself as a police officer. That got its attention. The shadow man turned around, and Trooper Aronson finally understood he wasn't dealing with a sight case, or a man at all. The shadow thing had no features whatsoever, save for two bright red eyes. Aronson unsnapped his firearm. At that, the creature turned and walked away, its shoulder passing right through a cinder block wall as it went. There was a sizzling sound, like arcing electricity, and the chemical smell intensified. When it had gone entirely, a shaken Aronson went back round to the front of the house and spoke to the old man, who was in a state of heightened anxiety. Apparently, Aronson had suffered a bout of lost time, as he thought the entire experience had taken at most a handful of minutes, but the old man claimed he'd been gone at least half an hour. Regardless, Aronson told the old man a version of the story that didn't involve anything remotely paranormal and continued with his shift. In the days following his encounter, he fell seriously ill. His hands and face peeled as though suffering from a terrible sunburn. Though he eventually healed and went back to work, Aronson has never seen anything like the shadow again, and he hopes he never does. Who are you going to call was our first responders episode. So mm-hmm. it was uh, paramedics, firefighters, uh, police, and I think nurses. I may have been in there as well. Uh, I Maybe not. I can't recall. But regardless, it's one of my favorite episodes uh, because of stories like that. Because you so rarely hear stories from police. Yeah. And I know they have them. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and if you're out there, if you are in the, if you are a police officer, U.S., Canada, wherever, you have a story you feel like sharing, let us know. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. We're happy to make it anonymous. We'll even change the location if you like or yeah. if just make it a, a sort of a general, generic location. But we would love to do another first responders episode. Because, again, I know officers have experienced some strange, strange things out in the world. This story really fascinates me just because it it hits so many elements of, well, shadow people lore, uh, but especially things like like the the, the terrible noxious smell, which ordinarily you associate with something like a Bigfoot. Yeah, but this was different. This was like a chemical. That's a good point. Yeah, that's more of like a, like a, a, a... it was like an organic burning metal, he said, and the Bigfoot smell is just like really stinky. Like, right? Yeah, like of course, a feral smell. And it's, and there's also the sizzling sound because yeah, that, that has been reported in other cases where things either like kind of phase in and out almost. Yeah, you know, there was a story, and and I think I may even have mentioned this in the actual episode itself, but there was a caller on coast to coast who talked about a sizzling a, a black hand swiping through the air making sizzling sounds yeah and and so it just makes me wonder if it's like uh you know if if it's some sound of of interference between two worlds or something you know Mm -hmm. it's just a a fascinating thing and i i'm endlessly interested in it especially in the south i i am also fascinated by the american south i've spent uh, probably more time down there than i have in any other state apart from california and i really believe the water down there that is so prevalent and seems to connect the land really has something to do with that sort well, of magic that, that runs through it. And that makes sense. There's yeah. a lot of marsh, a yeah. lot of... And I, underground water. Like it's just literally, literally everywhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, that's, uh, again, another great story. Thank you to everyone who sent in your suggestions yeah. for stories for this episode. Again, this is sort of our uh, this is our softball episode that we do, <laughs> you know, usually first, second week of January because we're taking some time off. We just record it in advance. 
We want to explore some of your favorite stories from and the past ours. couple of years. And ours. Yeah. Yeah. And just, uh, again, look at them with fresh eyes and, and have a little fun. Just uh, play up with the format a little bit. So thank you for joining us. We're going to take a quick break and come back with our patron shoutouts and listener mail. Welcome back. Thanks as always to the rest of the team, Luke Greensmith, Anthony Germain, and Sarah Kent for their help on this and every other episode. Couldn't do it without you. And hopefully they're enjoying their time off too. Mm-hmm. I know we're going to be coming coming back at it strong at the end of January. We've got uh, a whole new slate of stuff we're planning out for the year coming. We're going to be launching, relaunching some old stuff, uh, launching some new stuff. So make sure to keep checking in. Every two weeks we'll have new episodes and we will be filling in on some cool new stuff going on here at uh, Ghost Story Guys HQ. But in the meantime, we want to get to our patron shoutouts. Which we do have to remind you, we are doing this in late December. Yes. So if you're listening going, hey, wait a minute, I became a patron in the first week of January. Why is my name not being mentioned? That's why. That's we'll get why. to you. I Absolutely. Promise. Yep. The episode after this, you will be on there. We promise. Of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we'd especially like to thank our newest patrons. They are Danny Hall, Debbie Shadoff, Andrew Patience, Eddie Felix, Jane Anderson, and Beck Solver. Thank you so much, everyone, especially signing up in December. December can be a pretty hairy month. Absolutely. And we appreciate the hell out of it. So again, thank you so, so much. If you want to join the team, head on over to patreon.com slash ghost story guys. That's patreon.com slash ghost story guys. We have tiers at the one, five, 10, 20, and $50 levels. Gets you everything from exclusive stickers to the monthly cabin fever episodes, early access to the main episodes, anywhere from a couple days to a week early, depending on how quickly I get to the edit and how early we record the whole thing. <laughs> you also get early access to Luke's monthly Luke lore series, which is a monthly deep dive into an area of folklore that interests him. It's something that's uh, really coming along nicely. Mm-hmm. You also get access to the monthly live show, which is an opportunity for us to hang out with you. There are also signed art cards of my night photography. And of course, Ian's smash hit Christian country <laughs> album, Aware of Wonder. Oh my Lord. Yes. You that get, thing will never die. Not as long as I'm around, buddy. <laughs> You, you also get the high quality digital files. You don't get the. Uh, oh, not the commoner. No, that's streaming it. files. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, those were taken from a cassette master because he thought I couldn't do anything with it. I did. I, I was so foolish. You fool. Ugh. <laughs> Again, that's patreon.com slash ghost guys if you want to join the team. Next up, we have listener mail. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you. As always, we'd like to thank everyone who wrote in. We always love hearing from you, your your comments, your questions, your compliments, your gentle criticisms, of course. (laughs) And now, of course, it's only been, um, this is being recorded before episode 74, the Christmas episode even comes out. Yeah, it's been a week since we did the last episode. So this is going to be pretty thin, but uh, if you do send us an email, we will mention you uh, on the next show. Same thing with the patrons. We're just uh, running a little bit ahead. But for now, we'd like to thank... Tommy, Joey, Becky, Jane, Ellie, Kim, Kesley, Jessica, Josh, Simon, and Arwen. Thank you so much for reaching out, guys. We love hearing from you. We love knowing you're out there. We love your stories. And episode, 
uh, 76, which is going to be sort of the, the, the season opener, I guess you'd call it, uh, the first official episode of 2020, mm-hmm. is going to be a listener stories episode. Yay! So make sure to send us your stories, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com, and it can be anything paranormal. It doesn't have to be ghosts. If you, yeah, something you, you want to share, you want help understanding, we'll tell it on the show. Maybe someone else out there has seen something similar, and they'll be able to share that with you. So again, that's ghoststoryguys at gmail.com for your comments, questions, and gentle criticism. Very gentle because Brennan's a crier. It's so true. <laughs> Big, ugly, weeping <laughs> sobs. It's just so unpleasant for me. So please be gentle. Yes. We also want to give a shout out to our listeners, Katie and John, and congratulate them on their engagement. Yay. You, you fools. Good luck. <laughs> I, I mean, yes, good luck. Yeah. No. Yes. I, yeah. Good luck. No, really. No, I, it's great. Yeah, no, it is, it is. And uh, they're going to be passing through the island, and uh, it may come to pass that we have an opportunity to meet up. Oh, cool. So that would be pretty cool. But even if we don't, congratulations, you two, and enjoy your honeymoon. I know the place, and I do believe you're going to have a great time. You fools. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I'm saying that. You're the one who's divorced. (laughs) And if you need any marital tips. Yeah, don't ask you. Talk to Brennan. Yeah, that's right. If you want to pick up any Ghost Story Guys merch, head on over to ghoststoryguys.redbubble.com. We have a whole range of designs there, including our classic logos, our neon variant, courtesy of Canadian artist Becky Campbell, a bunch of cool fantasy-themed designs from LA artist Bob Vasquez, and our Into the Synth design, which is a personal favorite of mine. Again, that's ghoststoryguys.redbubble.com. And if you do end up buying anything, make sure to send us a screen cap of your receipt and we'll send you a couple stickers as a thank you. I know uh, someone reached out recently and did that and it was pretty sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. Hope they got over to you. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Helps bump the numbers and get more eyes on the show. And we certainly appreciate it. The theme song for our show, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter of Pizzanta Music. You can find more from him at soundcloud.com slash therealpizzantamusic. Our stories theme, is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. All other music on this show is provided courtesy of Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for pod-safe music or sound effects for your next project, head on over to epidemicsound.com and check them out. Hey, and remember, if you want to reach out to us, even while we're off, we are still monitoring all of our various facets of our, you know, channels into the real world. We've got Facebook, The Ghost Story Guys. We're on Instagram, The Ghost Story Guys. And, of course, you want to send us a story, and honestly, this is the best way to do it, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Yes, and we're also on Twitter at Ghost Story Guys, and that is administered by Sarah. Yes. So make sure to Yay, say- Sarah. Yes, thank you so much, Sarah. So make sure to get on over to twitter.com slash ghoststoryguys and say hi to her. And you have joined the future. I have reemerged. Yes, you, you have restarted your Instagram account. <laughs> I have. So, you know, if you're bored and you want to know what's going on with Ian, you can find out. Just go to Ghost Story Guy on Instagram, and that is where I will be. And I would love to have new followers and maybe follow you back if you're interesting. If you're not, I'll just be very polite. Which is more than I get, so consider yourself lucky. <laughs> I don't think I follow you. you no, you don't. <laughs> That's fine. Hey, I'm just keeping it real, man. Oh, well. What, what are you on, on Instagram? I am at largely the truth. Oh, Follow okay. my, my night photography. And cool. uh, I, I don't post much about my life because I am a private man. Uh, <laughs> but I, I am. Oh, please. I'm very private. I'm mostly, I'm not going to lie. I'm mostly a picture of my cat and whatever shit I'm doing that day. So Hard to argue with that. I know. Well, he's a great cat. So he really is. You can't go wrong. All right. So thank you so much, folks. We'll be back in two weeks with another show with our season opener. Really, our first episode of 2020. And until then, into the darkness we go.
your dying turntable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> longest pause ever. <laughs> Over the last kid, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, hang on here. Blah, blah. Through which ran a small stream second to <laughs> said to contain many beavers. <laughs> Tell me more. I don't think I can say that. Oh no, we're gonna steal them all. I see. Yeah. I look forward to going to jail. Yeah. It'd Cultural be great. jail, if not actual jail. <laughs> the fuck was that? <laughs> something over by the TV. Really? Yes. <laughs> that sounded like something scratching. No, it sounded like something slipping down a wall. That's not better. Oh, sure. I mean, Christ, I, I grew up in a place where there was, I believe, one family of, of Indian descent. So, you know, not exactly a cosmopolitan place. That's awesome. I judge a civilization based on how many turrets it has. <laughs> mm. I'm all about a good turret. Well, we can't talk about our feelings because no. then they're real. No. Let's just stuff it all down inside. Stuff it way down deep. Pour me another drink. Well, what, it's what, a, what period? Everyone lives in a period. Yeah. If you want to pick up any Ghost Story Guys merch, head on over to ghoststoryguys.rebel.com. Dot redbubble dot <laughs> <laughs>